Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are in need of your wisdom, uh, in need of your counsel and your guidance, and Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be here with us. Uh, We realize that we are all students in the school of Christ, and Lord, we pray that um, as we move forward, especially in the realm of education, uh, that you guide us in the direction that you would have us go. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. True education. So basically the three, educa- the three questions we want to answer about true education are, what is the aim of education? How does agriculture help to achieve that aim? And why is agriculture important anyway? And I'll start with the first paragraph here from the book Education. Our ideas of education take too narrow and too low a range. There is need of a broader scope, a higher aim. The true education means more than the pursuit of a certain course of study. It means more than the preparation for the life that now is. It has to do with the whole being and with the whole period of existence possible to man. It is the harmonious development of the physical, the mental, and the spiritual powers. It prepares the student for the joy of service in this world and for the higher, uh, higher joy of wider service in the world to come. Isn't that amazing? We're going to be continuing to serve in heaven. So we better learn how to do that here, right? Uh, that's, that's the important part here. Uh, My grandmother recently died, and we got a bunch of her books. And this was a book by Haskell, The Story of Daniel the Prophet. And I was just kind of glancing through it before I came, and I came across this this, uh, uh, quote here. Uh, This is taken from page 17 and 18. It says, God had an object in calling the Jewish nation to separate themselves from other nations of the world. It was that his people might stand before the world as light bearers, As a beacon set on a hill, Israel was to send beams of light to the world. The plan of education made known to Israel through her prophets was the means of keeping that light burning. When this God-given plan was neglected, the light as a candle deprived of the life-giving oxygen burned dim. Then it was that the nation was pressed upon all sides by the foe. There is a Hebrew maxim which says that the Jewish, uh, that Jerusalem was destroyed because of the education of her children was neglected. The prophet, or the prophecies of Daniel and the connected history prove the truth of this maxim. It may be added that the Jews were restored to Jerusalem as the result of the proper education of a few Hebrew boys. Right? It's a pretty sobering story, the story of Daniel and his three friends. And um, their stand in Babylon. And that whole, I mean, just that whole story is absolutely amazing to all of us, right? And I really believe, as I've been more around this, I'm, it's only my fourth year at Daystar. And um, I'm not saying I'm an expert on these things or anything, and I feel very humbled that the Adventist Agriculture Association asked us to share some things that are happening there at Daystar. Uh, but I really believe that agriculture is uh, one of the best analogies for how we share the gospel. God works through types and symbols, does he not? Right? Pictures and parables, right? Jesus spoke in parables. And really, we have one of the best analogies for how we are to share the gospel as farmers, right? We sing the song, Odell's a soldier, right? He had his hands on the gospel plow. And one day he got old, he couldn't fight anymore. We said, stand up, what? And fight anyhow. Fighting, like it's this battle song, right? But the weapon in the hands is a plow. That two-edged sword is there in the soil. And what does the soil represent? The hearts, right? The hearts. We are all, we all have a field of influence. It's all the people that you come into contact with. I loved how he brought out last night that 
the gospel is about relationships, right? That's what it is. You're building a relationship with the soil. You're going out into your field and you're understanding it and you're going back and forth and you're working with that soil, right? You don't just go out there and plant seed, right? The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 4.3 to break up the fallow ground and to sow not among the thorns. There's a lot right there in that one sentence, is there not? Look at this quote from Christ's Object Lessons. She says, the sowers of the seed, and she's not talking about farmers here. She's talking about gospel workers, right? The sowers of the seed have a work to do in preparing hearts to receive the gospel. In ministry of the word, there is too much sermonizing and too little real heart-to-heart work. There is need of personal labor for the souls of the lost. In Christ-like sympathy, we should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life, relationships. Their hearts may be as hard as the beaten highway, and apparently it may be a useless effort to present the Savior to them. While logic may fail to move, an argument be powerless to convince. How many of you have been in an argument over spiritual things, huh? Right? Trying to convince somebody if this is, you know, God even exists, or whatever it is you're trying to uh, convince somebody of, right? Um, these things are powerless, but the love of Christ revealed in personal ministry may soften the stony heart so that the seeds of truth can take root. You see, there's a science to sharing the gospel, right? We don't just go out any old time, any old month, and we just plant whatever we want. Do we not, right? It, it, there's a science to it. There's a season for it. There's a preparation of the soil. If you want to be successful in farming, there's a whole progression of working with that soil and soil testing and breaking up the fallow ground before we even bring out this amazing bag of seeds, right? But it's what's guiding us the whole time. I mean, the plow, the gospel plow, it's, it's, it's you've taken those seeds by faith into your heart and they have grown something in you that then you desire to share that with others. Amen? The plow, right? Uh, education page uh, 125, the plow. The gospel is the central theme of the Bible. The restoration of God's image in the souls of men. That's the purpose of the gospel, right? And really the purpose of education, you'll see here as we move through this, is the same. Because really this is, this is just a bag of seeds. You know, we can know this thing forwards and backwards, right? We can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But if we don't have what? Love, right? We're a clanging cymbal, sounding brass. We're an annoyance to people, right? If we don't have that love, it's like you're going around your field with only one hand on the plow. There's two handles there. There's a balance that God is wanting us to bring to the presentation of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 13, right? Christ goes down on the shore of the of, of Galilee there and people are pressed around him and he's fed thousands of people with just a little bit of food and he's raised the dead. He's done all these amazing miracles and they're like, this guy's going to lead us out from under the Roman oppression, right? And he steps into a boat and he has him push away a little bit and the first things that come out of his mouth are a sower went to sow seed. You see, God wanted to come and he wanted to implant his character into the hearts of humanity. That was the purpose. And he that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Christ is our example. And we're all called to sow that seed, no matter what our age is, no matter what our occupation is. This should be our focus. So if we're not training our young people to be mission-minded, not career-minded, then we've done a real disservice, right? 
And agriculture is one of the, the best ways to do that. What's represented by the plants that grow? If we're talking about spiritual things here, and the Bible, the Word, is the seed, it's planted in the heart, what's the result? What grows? What are you growing? What are we attempting to grow in the hearts of our students? Character, Character, right? Look at this, another quote here from Christ's Object Lessons, page 38. Every seed brings forth fruit after its kind. So the seed, under right conditions, there's the science, the preparation of the soil, knowing the season, when to bring out a certain truth to somebody, and it will develop its own life in the plant. Receive into the soul by faith the incorruptible seed of the word, and it will bring forth a character and a life after the similitude of the character and life of God. It's amazing, right? When you really think about it, because we all want to bear fruit, right? And what is the fruit? The fruit is really a blessing. If you remember, what are we called to be? What was Abraham called to be? A blessing, right? God said, Get out of your country from your father's house. Go to a a land that I will show thee, right? I will make thee a great nation. And I will curse them that curse thee. And I will bless them that bless thee. And in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We're called to be a blessing. The fruit is a blessing, is it not? The fruit, really. And what's in the fruit? The seed. 30, 50, 100 fold blessing, right? That we can share with those around us. We have this on a board. I should have just taken a picture of it in our, in our ad building. And uh, this is taken from Education, page 15 and 16. To restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to his perfection in which he was created to promote the development of body, mind, and soul um, that the divine purpose of his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. This is the object of education, the great object of life. So that character development, what we learn in the garden is teaching us how to develop characters. My last slide here, and then I'm going to hand it over to Brian Dunn. He's our Bible teacher, and he's going to continue along this same vein here. But this is the last quote I'll end with. Uh, Darren Greenfield shared with me this quote, and this has been, I think, one of the most exciting quotes that I've ever read. In the laws which God gave for the cultivation of the soil, he was giving the people opportunity to overcome their selfishness and become heavenly-minded. Canaan would be to them as Eden if they obeyed the word of the Lord. Through them, the Israelites, right? The Lord designed to teach all nations of the world how to cultivate the soil so that it would yield healthy fruit free from disease. The earth is the Lord's vineyard, and it is to be treated according to His plan Those who cultivate the soil were to realize that they were doing God service. They were as truly in their lot and place, listen to this, as were the men appointed to minister in the priesthood in the work connected with the tabernacle. Farmer, priest. That's pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. But it makes sense, right? I mean, God put Adam and Eve in a garden. Ellen White referred to it many times as the Eden School, right? And by the way, that quote there is uh, First Bible Commentary, page 1112. And that's where I'm, this is where I'm going to pass off to Brian. Brian is our Bible teacher. He works on the farm as well. And um, I'll hand the time over to him now. So, yeah, Tom just 
unselfishly offered to let me have a part in this because we work a lot together and so it's a journey we're both sort of discovering together. Instituting agriculture into the modern school plan is not easy. Have any of you found that or have any of you experimented with that? And my question is why is it so difficult for us to implement what the councils say and that's what I'm going to talk about today is the blueprint. And I've even heard the question asked, is there a blueprint, you know? And not necessarily asked in a healthy way, but like to suggest there isn't really a blueprint. And that's a, a, a semantics argument, do you understand? Because you could say, yes, it's a blueprint or no, it's a blueprint based on your definition of what a blueprint is. And so it's an evasive question, is there a blueprint? What we're really asking is, I mean, what's obvious is there are councils and the councils make up a blueprint. So to say there's no blueprint is not true. It may not be like fleshed out in every way that we want, and so that's why some say it's not really a blueprint. But it really is evasive. It's not an honest question. It's clear that there is, well, it might be by some, I should say. I shouldn't judge the hearts, but, but in, in how I've encountered it, it was sort of like a scoff, like there is no, there is no blueprint. Well, we look at what there is, okay, and, and we'll call it a blueprint tentatively. <laughs> And the other question is, uh, what does that blueprint say about agriculture? And the other part is, you have the uh, advancer, I'll try it in this one, see if it'll work. The other question is, uh, why is it so difficult? Why is it such a challenge? Why is it that it's so difficult to implement it? Because, let's face it, we have struggled as a church for years to hold on to um, the proper implementation of the blueprint that Ellen White, the guidelines that Ellen White lays out and that we have through Sutherland and McGann. Let's see if it'll work. No, okay. So why so much resistance in implementing it? How many of you know a little bit about the history between Battle Creek um, and Emmanuel Missionary College uh, later and then uh, or the, the struggle they had between Madison and the General Conference education. Have you looked at that at all? This terrible resistance that was there? And the question I have to ask is why? Now, I was raised um, a Roman Catholic. And my mother decided not to send me, like my other brothers, I was the youngest, she decided not to send me to the public schools because the public schools in Ireland were encountering the same problems as the public schools in the U.S. There was no moral compass whatsoever. You know, it was very secular, um, and drugs and immorality were rampant. My mother recognized this. We had moved back to the city. I spent most of my life in the country as a young boy, but moved back to the city. And she was terrified to send me, the youngest, to the public school after what she saw was happening with my two older brothers. And so she sent me to the Christian Brothers School. Now, does anybody know what a Christian Brothers School is? That's for you probably know, right? Christian Brothers. They're an order of, of Catholic celibate men that dedicate themselves to education. In the Counter-Reformation, they recognized quite quickly that Protestantism uh, was a danger. This idea of moving back to the Bible as a basis of our Christianity was a danger to the Catholic Church because it had built its religion from multiple sources. Bible was one flavor. It was like uh, Baskin Robbins had all these different flavors of ideas. And to make it a, an empire religion, they had to blend all of these different ideas and call it Christian. Because Christian was the unifying glue. But what happened to the Christian element was that when you unified it with all these other concepts, such as Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and all of these other concepts of our world, it polluted it. Now, of course, many Roman Catholics don't see it that way. They believe that it's a good thing to blend everything together. And they'll tell you, if you read in their statements of doctrine, they don't believe that the Bible is superior to the authority of the church fathers and such, and tradition. You know, they believe that God gave it to them and they passed it on, and they interpret the Bible, not the Bible them. You know what I'm saying? And we know that. But they saw that Protestantism this idea of the inspired Word of God being the source and driving force behind this movement, they realized that this was a great challenge to their system. And they immediately set about to Ignatius Loyola in making an educational system that would counter it, right? You're aware of that in our history. 
And we're going to look a little bit at my, my query, I guess, is that that system formed the educational basis of European education. And we know from Sutherland's book that it, it permeated into American education. But in the early years of American education, I'm explaining why such resistance, um, there were too many others who wanted the European system. They liked it. They knew it. They thought it was better. They didn't like these new untried ideas of Protestants. And we'll look at some of those ideas of a different form of education. So we had two competing forms of education. What prevailed in America? What prevailed in the U.S.? The European system prevailed. Our, our major universities followed it. Um, there's different individuals of Sutherland mentions. At first, through Jefferson and others, they tried to build a barrier to the papal system of education, which was basically coming from the pagan system of education, Greco-Roman. And they tried to build a barrier to it. And what we do in our schools and what we have from Ellen White are the elements that create that barrier to papal education, to the mindset which really comes from paganism and creates a pagan worldview. You see, it doesn't, why such resistance? Because it's permeated in our society, it's permeated in our culture, in our social structure. Education is so central to the way we think it's incredible. Now, obviously, it's not just education that happens in school, but it's education that happens in the home. But you can see how the two are linked because the parents, if they're educated in the school, they raise their children according to the principles that they learned in their school. So it really does, uh, it's the cart before the horse thing, you know, and all that. So why such resistance? One of the reasons why there was such resistance in the Battle Creek ideas was because they were acclimated to a Greco-Roman model of the world. Now, they recognize Adventist truths because they're awesome. You know, to know that you sleep when you die, to know that Christ is coming back to this world in real flesh, or at least uh, this world will be remade and, and we'll have a real flesh existence in the new earth. And all of those wonderful things I found out when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, all of that's wonderful. But it's, it's almost useless or worse than useless if you just attach that to a Greco-Roman mindset of the world. So I'm not just talking about doctrines. I'm talking about the way that we think. Okay, so why so much resistance? Because it's permeated in our culture. It's the way we're used to being. Have any of you got favorite foods? Yeah, you got favorite foods, right? And you know how hard it is when you go to another culture and all of a sudden none of those favorite foods are there. And you have to eat these other foods. And what do you normally think about those other foods? Maybe one or two of them are nice, but a lot of them are weird, right? And you just crave your old foods, you know. After you've been there a while, though, and you're forced to eat other foods, you develop an appetite for them. It's much the same with our traditions and the way we think, you know. And the Bible is not our natural food. It's something that comes from otherworldly sources. So we naturally militate against it in our normal nature until we get this grace from Christ to see it, that it is the better food. Anyway, I'll move on. So why so much resistance? And I believe there's still resistance today. I don't know. Okay. But let's look at the, the elements of the blueprint first. It is God's plan that agriculture shall be connected with the work of our sanitariums and schools. Our youth need to be educated, uh, the education to be gained from this line of work. It is well and more than well. It is essential. Can you repeat that? It is essential. It's not something that's time-based. It's not culture-based, right? It's just essential. You accept that? Yes, okay, pen of inspiration. That efforts be made to carry out the Lord's plan. There is a blueprint in this respect. You can see the reference there, okay? Uh, this can be made available to you also. Uh, now, remember the warning from Scripture. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And also Matthew 15, Jesus addresses this. It's probably from there that Paul gets this warning. You know, in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This was among the people of God he was warning. Okay. So, what we look at in the Bible... Think of it in this way. There's two different social models. There's the Cain model and the Abel model. If you look at Genesis, it's two different social models. As soon as Cain moves away, he sets up a society. And it's a different social order than the people of God. 
And so the sons of men and the sons of God are two different, they're, they're from the same race, but they're two different social orders that, that we find at the very beginning. Um, there's two different faith models in the world in general. There's Bible and papal. Papal really has absorbed all other faith ideas in the world besides the Bible because there's only one truth. The papal, because it was a Christianity that blended into paganism, it becomes the most incredible deception because it says it's Christian, but it incorporates everything other than the truth, right? That's why it becomes, in Revelation, it calls it, that power that comes out of Rome is the mother of harlots and causes the kings of the earth to commit fornication. Two different education models, pagan and Christian. I didn't include papal there because papal basically is, it's, it's, there are many Christians in that movement, but the model is pagan because it comes from Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and whatever, uh, through Aquinas and Origen and Augustine. Okay, so there's a great controversy going on between these two systems, okay? And what we're really talking about, to put it mildly, is the Platonic Aristotelian social order. Plato had a whole social order, and it involved education. It involved an, an academic elite, which Sutherland speaks of, and the system of the separation of class into the scholars and the laborers. You understand? That's the way Plato saw it. And secular educators today place all their faith in the Platonic model. That's, they think he was brilliant. And he's the mastermind of codifying paganism into this brilliant intellectual system. Brilliant but deadly. Okay? And then you have the holistic Bible order, God-centered. So one is man-centered, the Greco-Roman. The other is God-centered. And this is why Ellen White's ideas are so different for education and why she had so much to say against the, the current education, even that our own schools were adopting from looking outside, is they were man-centered, she was God-centered. Okay? And God had a lot to say. The extent of pagan influence. How wide is the extent of pagan influence in the end of time? Can you fill this in for me? All nations are, are something to do with uh, for all nations. Thank you. Good man. He knows his Bible, Moses. You are Moses after all, right? For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And we know who this is speaking of because it's speaking of the Roman power again. So the greatest sin of Christianity is to blend with paganism. Pagans, to a certain extent, are somewhat, not innocent, but in ignorance. But to take Christianity and blend it with something dark is the greatest sin in God's mind. So in Revelation, it speaks of this system, and it represents it as a woman riding this beast. And we know what that represents from the symbolisms. There's enough consistency in the prophecy to know what that is. But notice how many nations, all nations, it says in the Bible, right? If you look it up, Revelation 13, 8. So that's why it's so pervasive. When we're trying to set up an ed educational system in our work, all nations had drunk. That includes us, right? We had drunk of the wine of the wrath. And so we're trying to set up this educational model that doesn't follow the platonic model, which separates class. You have the academic elite and you have the labor class, right? And so if you want to be among the academic elite, you get out of the labor and you get into the books, right? Okay, now I'm not against books, but follow me. So Plato, Aristotle, you know, Plato emphasized uh, the Logos, which was not the God we know. It was pure knowledge, really. And this is where we get this idea in education that if we just keep doing higher abstract subjects, we'll, we'll become brilliant and we'll be like God. I mean, that is in the secular education system. It's not based on character. It's not based on morality. It's based on intellect, salvation by intellect. And unfortunately, as Christians, we've often followed that model of thinking that if we just put all our energy into making them intellectual, they'll figure it out and become good. That was Plato's idea. That's salvation by works, and it doesn't work. <laughs> okay? It's part of the salvation by works error, and it's from, straight from paganism, which, you know, the basis of paganism is salvation by works, by innate abilities, right? Okay, so where does agriculture come in? And so we have the Bible example of the Eden plan where God set man in a garden and he was to learn of God directly from nature first. Didn't have a Bible because the Bible was embedded in the perfect reflection of nature. After the fall, we have the Israel plan. 
All families were to have land that affected their social structure in terms of independence and an anti, a barrier to corruption, to centralization. This is part of the plan that God had. If each family had land, they had a vote, they had power, they had independence. And notice what's changed in our American society. We used to be here. We used to have the Israel plan. Most families in the U.S. had land. That was what drew people. You could have land. You could gain a, a livelihood. You could work hard. And sometimes it meant a trade, but in most cases it meant land and a trade. And then, of course, we have the schools of the prophets example in the Bible. And they in, involve labor and agriculture. Uh, you have Jesus' teaching of the parables in nature, which keep telling us something that, hey, the revelation that I'm trying to tell you is in nature already. You need to keep that connection. And in the Psalms, we have that. So the Bible gives us lots of general indicators of why agriculture and nature should remain part of our system. The spirit of prophecy reasons are many. I won't go through that right now because I don't have enough time. But I did want to talk about this. I've gone to the Elamites' councils and try to enumerate or identify the different titles of the things, you know, those categories of quotes that she gives. And when I'm looking at a school and saying, you know, do I want to farm at that school, I don't just see if they have a farm. Because you can have a farm and not follow the council, right? My question is, are you following the council regarding how farm should be integrated into schooling, right? So here's, we're going to look at what she actually says. How many people know the ABC's quote or have ever heard of it? Raise your hand. Hmm. Okay, th there's a quote that says this. Working the soil is one of the best kinds of employment. One of the best kinds, remember that. Calling the muscles into action and resting the mind. Study in agricultural lines should be the A, B, and C of the education given in our schools. That comes from an old Greek expression, the alpha, beta, gamma. Uh, the, the Greeks use that. Basically, it's the totality, it's, it's, it's the most important, and it's the basic element of which everything else comes, right? This is the very first work that should be entered upon. How many schools do you know have started their school by developing a farm first? Mostly only in self-supporting work, not in a regular education system, okay? This is the very first work that should be entered upon. Our school should not depend upon imported, here's the reason why, Imported produce for grain and vegetables and the fruits so essential to health. Our youth need to be educated in felling trees, tilling the soil, as well as in liter literary lines. So again, the pagan papal system avoided this because that was for the lower class. The upper class were to gain their education from literary sources alone, right? And she says, no, that's not, that's the that really is the Platonic model. It's, it's the Greco-Roman model. It's not the, the Israelite model, it's not God's model from the beginning, and we'll see why. So, number one, it's, it's really important in the setup and foundation of the school. The next thing she says is a portion, of, of, lab a portion um, of every day should be spent in labor. Every institution of learning should make provision for the study of practice of agriculture and the mechanic arts. I'm rushing, sorry. Competent teachers should be employed to instruct the youth in various industrial pursuits as well as in several branches of study. My question is, are they competent teachers if they don't have this? Yeah, well, I'm competent in English, or I'm competent in the sciences. But are you competent in a practical trade? Because in her view, that's not a very competent teacher if you're just a bookworm. Right? You need to have a skill. This was the plan of Israel. Every, even the richest families were to have land, and they were to have a means of sustenance besides their head knowledge. This is a Christian ideal, okay? And so if we're training teachers to only be teachers, and this is, I, I've gone, I have three degrees, higher level degrees, and I realize only now what I don't know <laughs> from those degrees um, as I read the Bible. And I'm not boasting, I'm just telling you, that's what I did. I went through three different, uh, you know, education, fine arts, and theology, right? And mostly in our school systems, one outside, well, two outside and and two in, actually, two different times. Uh, no, two outside and one in, yeah. Anyway, um, to be competent really means that we should be able to have a skill or at least be willing to learn a skill. And the other thing we're going to look at, so that was a quote that talked about, you know, the need to have a skill for teachers. 
the, this one is the, the subject and method. The order of importance, if one is neglected, is the heading. For young men, there should be establishments where they could learn different trades which would bring into exercise their muscles as well as their mental powers. If the youth can have but a one-sided education and it is asked, which, of, which is the greater, which of the greater consequence, which is of the greater consequence, the study of the sciences with all its disadvantages to health and life because you're poring over books in a lab, or the knowledge of labor and practical life. We unhesitatingly say the latter. If one must be neglected, let it be the study of labor. But, uh, honestly, how many of you would have thought of that? How many of you from our modern education viewpoint would think that way? You know, labor is just for stupid people. You know, they just... They need some effort, you know, like the, the slave idea. And the smart people are the people who read a lot, right? Now, I, I'm for reading, and I have to read a lot to present this. I have to do a lot of research. But the way that the mind is affected by only taking in information, dead information, does not make an intelligent person. Knowing a lot of data doesn't make an intelligent person in God's definition of intelligence. You understand what I'm saying? Because labor involves critical thinking, problem solving. It involves a balanced uh, physical system, right? It actually, the mind is developed to work in a healthy body, not in an unhealthy one. And the workings of a mind in an unhealthy body tend towards, they may be intellectual, but they tend towards immorality. Okay? The working of a mind in an unhealthy body that's willfully unhealthy, tends towards immorality. It develops areas of the brain. Maybe you might be great at mathematical equations or something, but it doesn't develop the moral capacities, which are the highest capacities of the mind. Remember, Greco-Roman education doesn't look at that. It looks at purely the intellectual capacities as education. We're looking at the moral capacities as education, and the intellectual follow as a servant only. Right? Okay. Satan is very intellectual, by the way. Books, superficial thinking. An education derived chiefly from books leads to a superficial thinking. Practical work encourages close observation, independent thought. You'll notice a lot about this in educational literature. I have a master's in education. They talk in the secular world a lot about these things, trying to bring them in to study in books. But she's saying the Christian viewpoint is that the only way you're really going to get them is in a practical, useful setting. Right? You can develop them a little bit from pure theory, but... It's still pure theory. Unless you actually do the labor, which is unselfish labor, which draws away from self, uh, otherwise you become puffed up. Paul has a lot to say about, you know, have you not noticed how not many high and mighty are called, not many scholars or philosophers are with us in the Christian fold? Because the Greco-Roman model didn't favor the Christian model. They were opposites. Now, there are overlaps, obviously. Rightly performed, it tends to develop practical wisdom, which we call common sense. Have you ever had somebody in a job placed over you who had a lot of degrees? You know, I'm speaking of, you know, I, I've been through that myself. I have degrees, but I don't really, they have some value, but not a whole lot. I've learned a lot more from God and from the scriptures. But the question I was asking, have you everybody, ever had somebody set over you who had a lot of degrees, but no practical experience, and you had practical experience, and what was your, what was your experience in that? Anybody? It's very frustrating because they don't know the reality of what you're trying to do. They only know the theory. And then they feel intimidated because you're trying to tell them this isn't going to work. You know, and human, human uh, personality gets in the way and you get this conflict of ego battles and stuff like that. But it's very hard to have somebody set over you who has learned theory from the books and you're actually having to do it and you're trying to tell them this won't work. And they say, no, you've got to do it my way because there's an authority struggle there, you know. And sometimes you can bring it around. And, of course, you know, working as, in a Christ-like way, you can help them to see they need the advice of somebody who's actually done it, right? But we're talking about common sense here. It develops ability to plan and execute, strengthens courage and perseverance, and calls for exercise of tact and skill. So what are these qualities? Are they intellectual qualities or are they character qualities? Well, they have some intellectual elements, but they're mainly character qualities that we're developing here, okay? And this is what's lacking in our, our pagan school systems or the pagan school systems. 
Now, she also mentioned independence and being able to provide her own food. If you look at the great uh, churches of history that were wilderness churches, the Waldensians and the early Celts, and I, I'm Celtic, I come from there, but I don't get it by genetics. I have to get it by faith. <laughs> so um, being a Celt doesn't help me unless I give my heart to God. But they, their system, if you look at has anybody seen the, the series uh, Lineage Journey? Very good series, five-minute bites of history made by young people in North England Conference. I pastored over in Northern Ireland for the British Union Conference. And uh, I was really happy to see stuff like that coming out of the North England Conference. It's, it's a story of our church history. It sort of follows B.G. Wil- Wilkinson's uh, Truth Triumphant and Great Controversy. Uh, look it up, Lineage Journey. But they talk about the early Celtic missionary uh, they weren't monasteries, they were schools of training that became famous all over Europe. People were sending their children to them. This little island, you know, Iona off Scotland and in Northern Ireland and places like that. And if you look at w- that series or any other series or Truth Triumphant, one of the major things that they did was they had agriculture and trades. And then they copied the scriptures and they were training missionaries. It was like an 18-year course, by the way, that they had. 18 years, really thorough. And those, that small little group sent out missionaries all over the world, and they turned the world upside down. So much so that Columbanus, who was one of the later Irish um, or Celtic uh, missionaries, made it all the way to the Waldensian Alps. He's now canonized as a Catholic saint, by the way, even though he spoke out against, spoke out against the Roman bishops and their excess of wealth and, you know, impracticality. He was a practical man. He was a great builder. He could train wild animals, they said, to labor. Somehow he had this gift. And uh, he basically met with the Italians who were fleeing from the Roman corruption, the Christians that were in the Alps, which later we know as the Vaudois or the Waldensians. And what do we know about the Waldensians? Another thing that's said about one of the princes, the papacy was trying to wipe them out as a people because they claimed the Bible and the Bible only. Uh, one of the things that, um, that they um, were known for was their ability to make land fertile where nobody else could, the Waldensians. So you see this all the way along. They were practical tradesmen. They were brilliant scholars. Even though they didn't have the training of the Roman scholarship, they could take it on. And some of them actually went to Roman colleges. To um, That's my wife working with the students. So agriculture was a major part, independence, especially to agriculture and other trades, building and other things, were a major part of the wilderness church, always. That's how they survived and were able to survive outside of the control of the centralized Greco-Roman system. So you can see why we, at the end of time, are being counseled to have the same thing. We don't want to be dependents. We want to be independents. Our, Our missionaries need to be independent. Faculty and staff should work alongside their students. I'm running out of time, but you can see the quotes here. And uh, manual labor is the general heading, but then she says agriculture is sort of king of the manual labor. So if you're, not, if you're only going to have one, have agriculture, but then add the others, okay? The other manual trades. But you see, teachers themselves need to exercise. How many schools do we have where the teachers work every day with the students? Even our school, we haven't gotten to that point yet. But it's in the councils. My question is, why aren't we following the councils? Well, it's sort of hard. And I've looked at it, and the reason why is that we have adopted the Greco-Roman model of society, and our teachers are educated in that. And even though we have this outward veneer of Adventism, our life is modeled after the Greco-Roman model, which is, you know, buy your food at the grocery store. That's what Romans did. They got their grain supplies and they're from Africa and everywhere. And they lived like Romans. And they went to the theater and they had their leisure time and they, they sold their vote to elect politicians and that was their life. They were not involved with their land. Initially, if you, anybody read uh, A.T. Jones, how much more time do I have? How, anybody read The Two Republics by A.T. Jones? He mentions how Rome fell apart, and it's a really valuable book. Uh, I love to read all of our pioneers' writings. Uh, Obviously, Spirit of Prophecy is my main one, but I love to read what those men were writing. Those men were the impetus to the educational reform, actually. The 1888 message led up to the educational reform, and there's a grace link there that's very important, the plow that Tom was talking about. But in the two republics, he mentions that Rome in its constitution 
had a plan for citizens, the common citizen, to keep the land. They were not, the aristocracy was not to buy up all the land, right? They recognized that for the, for the success of their empire, the individual system, citizen was important. Now, they were far from having the freedom that we have, but they did recognize the aristocracy should not be allowed to create a monopoly and buy up all the land. And guess what happened? In A.T. Jones' book, he records the history. The aristocracy found corrupt ways around their constitution. They broke their own constitution, the light that God had actually given them. And this is the beginning of their fall. It started very early on. And they bought up all the land, and all the people were crowded into the cities, the citizens. And the only thing commodity they had then was their vote. And they were on this socialist system where they got food and theater and, you know, what was that saying, famous saying, give them bread and theater and we can rule as we wish, something like that. And that's exactly what they did. So the aristocracy basically bought up all the land. So now you, and then they had more slaves and citizens in Rome. And so the common person was, was disconnected from the land. Now, does that sound familiar? Look at the trend of American, American thinking and what we have done. Uh, I think over 100 years ago, 50% of our people farmed the land, or at least had some connection with the land. Some were tradesmen who had some land, but a lot of them were farmers who had land. They're full-time, some are part-time. But uh, many people just had gardens where they could subsist, like during the Great Depression, where people in the country lived like kings in comparison. But what's happened in America? What society do we live in today? Is it more like the later Republic of Rome or the earlier? And that's what A.T. Jones' point was. We're transitioning, just like the early republic, from an independent citizen to a centralized system where we're dependent on a small group who have all the power. So we, it's not necessarily an aristocracy, but it is uh, an elite group, right, that, that control the 1% of farmers now. We have 1% or some say 4%, somewhere between that. It's a tiny percentage that do the farming. Very easy to rule a nation the way you want in a sort of dictatorship style when you have the control of that, you know. And when you have farmers that are hooked into that system, they're not independent either because they have to do such big farms that they're totally dependent on subsidies and grants and all sorts of huge uh, things to make that artificial system work, which wouldn't normally work because God's system was smaller farms with independence, right? Not a huge corporate farm system. So, you know, we might, be, we might be capitalists, we may not be communists, but really, no matter what political system you have, they're all capable of the same level of corruption and doing the same thing, right? So we know that communism has done the same thing. Um, students should learn good business sense. Another one of the points, farmers should not think that agriculture is a business that is not elevated enough for their sons. Agriculture should be advanced by scientific knowledge. Farming has been pronounced unprofitable. People say that the soil does not pay for the labor, and on and she says, yes, it will if we, if we face it or approach it in the right way, if you read the rest of that quote, okay? So, um, so this is got called, in modern education, integration or, what's the other word, interdisciplinary. So you want to learn science, but what we learn Greco-Roman science style methodology, where you categorize, isolate, you put everything in little boxes, and it's not connected to your real life at all. Right. That's Greco-Roman. Um, it, it comes from Aristotelian thinking, which the particular is breaking things down into little groups, and you find out about everything from this little focus on everything. And that's not holistic. It's not God's approach. God's approach to science is, if you learn science, it should plug into the real purpose, which is to provide food, to provide sustenance. Right? If you learn math, it should have to do with building. or you know, and, and yet, we favor the abstract use of subjects rather than the concrete use of subjects. That's another reform we can make in our schooling. Interdisciplinary and integration into the subjects that really are practical. So the math and the science ties in with that, right? And you can actually learn it while you're farming. <laughs> you can do the math. We have to do math when we farm. We have to do science when we farm, right, Tom? And Tom uses it in his value-added products, distilling and all sorts of stuff. Okay, so the Bible should be integrated with nature. This was Jesus' lesson to us all the time because the Eden plan is unchanged, Ellen White says. It's still the plan that God ordains. It doesn't matter that our culture has changed. Yes, it might be harder to implement, but we're about faith, not about, oh, well, it's too hard. 
Faith doesn't say, well, is it too hard? Should I do it? Or is it too hard? Faith says, yes, Lord, right? It's very simple. So anyway, God makes a way where there was normally no way. So I can't read all these, but basically, um, even though the Bible is first place, nature is, is right alongside with it, right? And uh, primarily, that is in the cultivation of the soil, not in sports. Because, oh, we get them out in nature and they play sports in the, in the grass. Well, when you're thinking about scoring a goal, you're not thinking about how beautiful the grass looks. You're thinking about dominating somebody, you know. And so, and the same in, um, I mean, I, I grew up as a distance athlete, a runner. I was out in nature a lot. But most of the time, my thoughts were funneled towards my glory, my conquest. And it took me a while to get out of that when I became a Christian and realize that that focus was robbing me of the benefit of actually being out in nature. And it's like, wow, God made all this for us. He loves us. He has something incredible in store for us. There's a message in all of this, you know. And it's not about being better than somebody else. It's about actually realizing my humble position in all of this, that we're all codependent with one another. We, we need one another, right? And so sports was the Greco-Roman way of getting the exercises in, into, the, into the education. And it was also a way of getting the Roman mentality into the education, which was conquering, dominating others. That was the whole Rome. That's why it's called the beast in, in, in the books of prophecy. The beast, a terrible beast system, right? Because it was really looking at its own survival and not living by faith. Um, Direct contact with nature and nature's God. So the way that we interface with nature is important. You know, just having an outdoor ed program, as good as they might be, is not enough. It has to be the cultivation of the soil, what she's talking about it's not enough to just climb a cliff and say, I climbed it. You can get into that same conquering mentality. But, you know, to stop and look at that rock and say, wow, this rock is impenetrable. It reminds me of Christ. Or this rock teaches me something about the need for a foundation, a solid foundation, right, in my spiritual life. So how we interface with nature, not that we don't have fun in nature. We can do that. But it shouldn't be the main aspect of outdoor education. The main aspect of outdoor education is working in God's system. I really encourage you to read Sutherland's work. Sutherland's work is basically a synthesis. Um, I can't read this, but uh, looking at Sutherland's book, talking about manual labor and its, its importance in the Protestant denominations, um, and how that before the Advent movement, God was moving Protestants to try to incorporate this. But you know, there was great resistance, and the great resistance came from the churches attached to these schools, from the Christian denominations, because they were Greco-Roman in mindset, Christian in veneer, Protestant in veneer on the outside, but they didn't have the understanding. Sutherland, Sutherland uh, studies in Christian education, and what's the other one? Broken cisterns, living fountains of broken cisterns. E.A. Sutherland, you can find them on ellenwhiteaudio.org, they have the PDFs and everything there. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.